Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you doing, Brett? I'm doing well. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Just this minute, looked at your discussion from chapter five. <laughs> mm. I went in a little bit different direction than I think maybe you intended for it to go, but... Uh, oh, I have no... I I, it's mainly to evoke thought, but yeah, your questions on truth and what the nature of truth is, it must be in connection to a lie as a deception and truth as an exposure of a deception in, in a biblical context. Mm. Uh, hey, Austin, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good, Paul. We've missed you. Is it warm in Missouri today? No, it's cold. That's why I'm all bundled up here. Me too. I'm, I'm wearing your uh, your sweatshirt today. Oh, perfect. It's, that's that's perfect. how cold it is here. <laughs> how you doing, Jonathan? I'm good, Paul. How are you? Well, good, good. I did just read your uh, piece for Chapter 6. Enjoyed it. How you doing, Brian? Doing well. How are you all? Yeah, we've had a couple of hard weeks here. We... We let this old house, there's no end to the work that could be done on it. She had family coming from Japan, and so we were quite worried that he might find our, our standards a bit beneath his, <laughs> though we tried to get ready for them. We, I don't know if you all have them in your part of the country, but they're called Japanese beetles, and they're just everywhere. One night, my daughter referred to them as bed bugs. I think he may have misunderstood and was quite worried about bed bugs from <laughs> that point. <laughs> and in fact, may have confused the Japanese beetles for bed bugs. <laughs> They're stinky little guys. That's what fate, my, my wife says that. I, I, I'm not getting it. Maybe I don't know the odor, but mm. we, we actually have a, a twofold problem. In one room, we have wasps, uh, and then those little beetles are everywhere. Pestilence. Yes, yes. In Missouri, we do have the pestilence. And you notice Matt is here with his new microphone. We're not hearing you, though. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Okay. Like, like Barry White. <laughs> That's exactly who I thought of. <laughs> well, actually, tonight, uh, this is the last you know, section on the book of Ephesians, though we have two more weeks. So next week, we're going to do Philemon. Let me uh, say some things about Ephesians 6. I don't know if I can fit in everything I want to say, but I'm going to try to fit it in ultimately to what John Howard Yoder is doing. But Several pr preliminary things that, you know, we may miss in putting on the armor of God. And my first point is a similar point that I made with imitation. In fact, I'm not sure that we've changed subjects. And that is that Paul is describing salvation. Now, that may just sound wrong to you unless you've gotten the idea that what we mean by salvation is a practical salvation. 
But I think you want once you get that, then you can reel that out and to be saved then, to be you know delivered is to be saved from the powers. I'm not saying that's all that it is, but that must be a big part of what it is, right? The power of sin, the power of death, but these principalities and powers, so that I, I, you know, even people who do Ephesians, you know, if you have kind of the reform tradition in mind, uh, I think there's a way of reading both imitation and putting on this armor as if it's, oh, like a subsequent thing or a consequent thing. But no, I think this is a primary thing. The way you're saved, and I don't think this is a different subject, is by putting on Christ. And putting on the armor of God, I'll show here in a minute, is parallel, you know, in Paul's understanding to putting on Christ. And so obviously salvation is not deliverance from God. It's not, you know, deliverance from a, a, a legal category. But what we're talking about is an atonement theory, deliverance from the powers of evil, death, and the devil. And so defeating the powers, I think you can say, is synonymous with salvation, and maybe without qualification, if we understand that putting on the gospel in its completeness is the, is the only way to defeat the power. In other words, it's not just, oh, we defeat the powers and that's it. But no, there's only, these powers are such that it is only in and through the gospel uh, that they can be defeated. I th that's the way that I understand it. And what, I'm ha what I have in the back of my mind as I'm saying all this, the power of death and the power of the orientation to death, which expresses itself or shows itself in, in violence. That was that's number one, and I'll fill that in a little bit. Number two, uh, and this really is Walter Wink, and we can fit most all the of what Walter Wink is doing into Ephesians six in that nonviolence does not mean non-resistance to evil. No, this whole section on putting on the armor is describing resistance to evil uh, and defeating evil, defeating the powers. So I think that's key. And everything in the passage then is, is about resisting the powers. The other thing to note is that the passage is a summary, and I don't know if you've caught this, it's a summary of what Paul has said in Ephesians. That is, this is Paul's typical mode that he uses the same vocabulary that it ties back earlier in the book, he uh, is giving us a, a synopsis of his gospel. If we have been correct in saying that Ephesians is the summation of Paul's gospel, then here is the summation of Ephesians. Here is the heart of Paul's gospel. Christus Victor would be a way of describing this. Uh, this is from Wink, but I thought this fit, um, that he says, the gospel does not teach non-resistance to evil. Jesus counsels resistance, but without violence. You know, he goes to uh, both Matthew 5.31 and then Ephesians 6.13, 
And his point is what translators have often overlooked is that anti-stenai is most often used in the Greek version. It's a technical term for warfare. That is, we're engaging in, in a kind of warfare. But the idea here, you know, the soldiers march out and they meet each other and they take a stand that, you know, the, the Paul keeps saying, you know, stand firm, make your stand. And then he quotes Ephesians 6.13, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand anti-stenide on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And so Wink says, the image is not of a punch-drunk boxer somehow managing to stay on his feet, but a soldier standing the ground refusing to flee in short, anti-stenai means more here than simply to resist evil. It means to resist, to overcome. And so Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse, but we're not resisting it on its own terms. This is still wink. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He's urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by a third way. And Wink is famous then for this notion of a third way. And so the correct translation be, be the one still preserved in the earliest renditions of the staying, do not repay evil for evil. You know, this is Romans, Thessalonians, 1 Peter. And then he mentions the scholar's version, don't react violently against the one who is evil. And, of course, this fits with our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, the spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Art, by the way, has uh, Matthew 5, uh, 38 and 39. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, whereas I tell you not to oppose the wicked man by force. A yeah, a beautiful translation. If you Rather, don't have whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. Yeah, yeah. You don't use violence, but that doesn't mean you don't resist. Jesus is all about resisting. I mean, can't, isn't that the whole ministry of Jesus? And isn't that what Paul is betraying here? Resistance to evil. It's just that you don't do evil in resisting evil. The other thing here, I have a guy in my church. Whenever Ephesians comes up in this passage, he says, aha, see, Paul believed in, in the military and in violence because he refers to the armor here, the armor of God. And, of course, that's exactly wrong. It's not <laughs> every piece of the armor is tied into the gospel, peace, uh, salvation. And this is really an Old Testament uh, imagery that Paul is picking up. So in Isaiah, you know, the, all of this imagery is there, the belt, the breastplate, the sandals, the shield, the helmet, the sword. The way that we're going to resist the principalities and powers is not through the powers that they use, uh, but by this armor of the gospel. And Paul, doesn't this tie into as well what you were saying in one of the other classes about you know, sort of a spiritual or a theological or a mystical reading of the text over and against uh, 
more literal understanding, not to discount the literal, but to also incorporate the mystical. That is that he's doing the armor of God. The whole thing that he's doing here in this Ephesians section is talking about these great and profound mysteries. He calls, you know, marriage. He's, in other words, he's thinking through these things in a mystical way, uh, including the armor, one would think. Yes, I think that the mystery, part of the mystery, I mean, part we've talked about that part of the mystery is partly revealed, but I think there's also the sense that the defeat of the powers, while I think we can partially understand how that functions, the ultimate defeat of the powers, I think, is part of the mystery. Paul, what would you say to the person who um, objects here and says, you know, God's been promising in, in the scriptures for all these years to, you know, crush the wicked and to overthrow the rich and the oppressor and the powers and all this stuff. And the rich still reign over us. You know, the elites still have their power and uh, the principalities are still functioning. You know, it's, I actually heard someone, um, it was a conversation about the problem of evil um, and they brought that up. Oh, I think that's exactly right. In other words, the powers reign in the cosmos of darkness. And unless we make that sharp distinction, I, I think that this thing is overwhelming. I mean, what, what we're ultimately describing in this class, and I'm going to say this and then I'll, I'll take it back a little bit, is that the church has been overwhelmed. And I, I don't mean this quite the way it sounds, but we can talk about the Constantinian shift as a reality that there really is the accommodation of the powers. And each of us, I think, can testify whether we come from a nonviolent tradition or whatever the tradition, that in the very institutions of which we're all a part, these powers are definitely at work if the marker of that power is the thing that you just described. In other words, uh, this thing is everywhere. I think it's almost, well, I think it is irresistible apart from the gospel, and the gospel misunderstood then accommodates the powers. Now, I want to I back away from that a little bit, and I think even John Howard Yoder would back away from the way that he is often understood. And there's certainly, we can identify this shift with Constantine and whether that is completely historically accurate, you know, even Yoder says, well, actually, it's surrounding Constantine, and it's a much longer process. And even if somebody wants to argue on behalf of Constantine, the point is still well made that the, there has been an accommodation so that quite literally the church in an Augustinian understanding is invisible. That's what he argues. Uh, the church has become invisible in that shift. Now, what Yoder would back away from that and says, but nonetheless, the gospel works. And he too then would say what you said earlier, Matt. Yeah, but in every period of history, he even references the Middle Ages. Uh, nonetheless, we understand that there is an overcoming of the powers, that there's still, the gospel still works even though the church, the institution may have been silenced. It's a, um, it's a tough question, but you know, the, the, in that same conversation, they went on to talk about how, you know, what if it could be that 
sort of the social order that God has given us, which includes the state and the, you know, in our modern, our late modern time is a gift. That's just another way of looking at it, right? To say, well, is the situation that of an, is there an accommodationalism or is there a, you know, or, or is the social order that we have uh, given to us by God and that Christians have to learn how to negotiate the tension, you know, that the certain, that the state does perform some arguably, you know, some, some functions that, that we appreciate or should appreciate or whatever. That was just part of how that conversation went that, um, is the Christian church over and against, you know, the state does an accommodation need to be made. I think the, the, the kingdom of God has its own ethic. It is a different order of power. It is administrated. It has a different culture, a different government, a different ethic, a different economy. And I think we have to have an appreciation that the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of the world. Right now, we in a Christian nationalism, we have the idea of a Constantinianism in which we imagine the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the world, that nationalism is actually the working out of God's kingdom. Now, that's not to say that we can't have an appreciation. In other words, what, what nations will always do, what the kingdoms of this world will always do, is they will have war and rumors of war and, and violence is a necessity. And according to the logic of this world, violence will always be a necessity. Which is why somebody like David Bentley Hart is such a disappointment. Because he can describe so beautifully a peaceable ontology in the beauty of the infinite. And just, you know, go on and on about that who Christ is, is who God is. Boy, he nails it. He gets it right. And then he undoes everything by saying, but nonetheless, we need violence. Maybe uh, John Milbank, same thing. You know, Hart and Milbank, who does a better job of describing an originary peace? That who God is, is who Christ is. And John Milbank does the same thing. I think we're up and against an especially strong power here, would be my explanation, that even the most brilliant of minds succumb to the necessity of violence. And I think they've misunderstood the ground of nonviolence in who God is, ironically. And that's a strong statement because I don't know of anyone who describes better than these two guys uh, a peaceable ontology. So I think we have to, I think part of the thing here is to recognize the seeming necessity of violence. We, we don't need to go through all the what-if scenarios, and uh, that's that's inevitably where this lands. But of course, what where we've not gone is what the, the gospel does and says, and is describing the peace of Christ, that who God is is uh, found in Christ, and who Christ is, is the, the, the king of the peaceable kingdom. Uh, just a real quick kind of just uh, maybe offer that, that point of view and where they might come be coming from, because I think it could be helpful to the conversation and to your, to your point eventually, is that I think someone like Hart would say, yeah, but the transcendentals are, you know, convertible. In other words, like the good, the beautiful, the true, 
um, the wise, you know, justice. It's uh, these are the you know, God is these things in and of Himself. And sometimes in different situations, you know, there's a lesser good. Uh, the, he, you know, the example would be the, for the people who are hiding the Jews, you know, during uh, the World War II, whenever Colonel Hans Landa comes, you know, looking for the people that you're hiding underneath your floorboards. And, you know, you got these hardcore uh, people who would say, who Kantians, you know, who would say, you can't lie. You can't lie in that situation because you couldn't universally will. That's the Kantian, the categorical imperative, right? Is that, well, you just can't lie. You have to tell the truth because if you wouldn't will a lie for everyone everywhere, then you just can't ever do it. And Hart would say, well, of course, that's ridiculous. You should lie. That lying actually in that situation would be a good and that it would actually be a situation where you were serving a higher sort of transcendental value in that situation um, through a lie that you'd be protecting human life. And that perhaps even, you know, at what point does it become unjust, you know, to not protect the innocent? So that's where, you know, I, I, I think that you, it's a, it's a good critique that you're offering, you know, it it does seem, but just to offer that sort of perspective, it's like, yeah, but there are these competing sort of transcendental categories that come into play. I know that we don't do our ethics based upon situational, you know, situational ethics and Joseph Fletcher and stuff like that. But nonetheless, there are those times that come that are where there's competing goods, you know, there may be a lesser good. Some people call it a lesser evil, you know, Um, but nonetheless, you know, sometimes we may have to subvert uh, the true, which is a transcendental for the good or the just, right? So it's a, it's a complicated, does that make sense? It makes sense. And there's a very simple answer. But David Bentley Hart and John Milbank, ironically, have not understood Walter Wink's interpretation of the gospel. So Hart has a very naive understanding of pacifism, of nonviolence. He has a picture of pacifism as if it's non-resistance. I would say the same thing about John Milbank. So that what we're getting in Walter Wink you know, Hart uses the illustration, oh, you know, what good is it a bunch of, you know, peaceniks singing kumbaya outside of the death camps as the black smoke goes up of the bodies, you know, the Jews being killed? Well, obviously, that does no good, but what he's missed in his kind of silly illustration is the kind of resistance to evil that is the heart of the gospel. And I know I'm attacking your hero here, and I, I do have a deep appreciation for Hart, but I also, for me, and I don't mean to make this a test of fellowship, or this is not my dividing wall of hostility, but I think that to fully appreciate the gospel is to fully embrace the reality of the peace of Christ, and I just cannot believe that someone that holds that violence is ultimately a necessity has fully grasped Paul's gospel, especially as it's conveyed here in Ephesians 6. And my hero's origin, by the way, who was a pacifist. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I do love David. I do love David. But I I think, I mean, I think that your critique is, um, I don't know. Surely he's, um, like we were talking earlier, it's like, sure, he, you know, surely he's aware of Dr. Martin Luther King and Gandhi and, uh, you know, these sort of, you know, Chomsky and uh, other types of peace movements that are nonviolent, radical, you know, resistance movements. 
but nonetheless, I mean, you know, your your critique may still be fair. Maybe it's an unimaginative. It is sort of a dismissive thing, and nobody's singing "Kumbaya" outside of the peace camp or outside of the death camps. I mean, that's a silly. Um, well, I threw him. in the kumbaya. I was okay, a- yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard him talk like that, but um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, your point is your your, your point is well. T- I don't know what nonviolent resistance would look like in that particular. And my, most of us don't. And and I think that somebody like Walter Wink has begun to explore this territory. In other words, we all know that the death camps would have never happened if the church had been the church in the first place. We all know the death camps would have never happened if we had not been overcome by a kind of Constantinian Christianity in which violence is a necessity. So there, there is no question that, you know, who God is found in Christ is peace. That's why we do this, ultimately. And of course, what we're, you know, the little thing, the little tension here in what we're describing, uh, and Yoder points this out, is... Well, what we've actually shifted to discussing at this point is, yeah, but does this thing work? And of course, that's not the way, that's not the basis upon which we do the gospel. We may not see how it works. That's part of the mystery, that it's going to be made to work in and through who Christ is. And so step one is, this is who God is, and we are to be imitators of God. We are to put on the full armor of Christ, which is part of the point here with the armor. You know, whose armor is this? And in the Old Testament, it's clearly God's armor. You know, the the picture in Isaiah 59, the only hope for salvation was if God fought for them. This is the then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. The passage is obviously reflected in Ephesians 6, but the thing to note is the armor belongs to God and to God alone. The armor does not belong to Israel or to any subset of individuals within Israel. There was no man, and there was, you know, who could do this. There was no one to intercede. What we're always talking about is human intervention and human methodology, and what we really need and what we have in the gospel is God's methodology and God's intervention. And I think that's the the significance of this armor. Only God was able to save Israel from their sins, and only God is able to save us And we mean this in a real world overcoming and defeat of evil and recognizing that the huge evil is the violence and the necessity, the mutually assured destruction, you know, where violence takes us. And, you know, why can only God save us? I think part of the picture, we need to get a, a picture of how serious evil is. It's easy to say, you know, why can only God save us? And, and we may go religious at this point and not practical, and I don't mean it in that sense, but God can only save us because he defeats death, right? God saves us from death. But my point with death is, yeah, but the power of violence depends upon a, it, it is a particular orientation to death. Once we get that, then we understand this pervades our life, that we, the powers 
depend upon the power of death and the wielding of the power of death. That's the way the state functions. You know, whoever has the power of death rules. You know, in this sense, Hannah Arendt's description, the wrong description, is, the, is in a sense, though, that's a description of the way the world works. And of so powerlessness. Reason, yeah. The, of powerlessness. I mean, right, the, the, that's what you talked about in the last class, that violence doesn't actually have any sort of creative uh, power. It's an it's a, um, incapacity. Sin, you can't make anything with sin. Sin just undoes things, you know, um, right? Um, well, as you said that, I was thinking, you know, bring, bring this up at any group of people. And you, and you can just predict 100% how the conversation goes. It's almost like people have blinders on, and it's like they've all read the same script. They're going to immediately bring up the what-if scenarios. You know, what if a guy breaks into my house? What if? Uh, and so uh, what I was thinking of, there is just a failure to think, a failure of creativity. There is a necessity that is clear in the kind of just repetitiveness of the sort of conversation you inevitably fall into around peace. And in 2023, in a nuclear age, how could Christians be anything but, you know, proponents of nonviolent resistance to evil? I mean, th that's what you just said, mad, mutually assured destruction. That's a doctrine that the president has to sign up for. It's like a, it's a job requirement, right? To, you got to, you got to be willing to push the button. You got to be willing to kill millions and millions of people. And it's like, well, I would think that the alternative, that the Christian alternative to that would be say to say, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. But you can understand though, why people who aren't Christians or whatever would say that's crazy. You have to have the mutually assured destruction part of it because they'll just kill us. The gospel is foolishness right. in the sight of the world. And I think it's this topic that it shows itself. Christ taking up the cross. How does that help anybody? It's literally a different logic. You know, I, you, you get tired of the conversation with people that want to do the what-if scenarios, because the, you, the, what they're really saying is, they're they're beginning with a rejection of the logic of the gospel. They're, it speaks strongly to me. It speaks strongly uh, as y'all have spoken of Origen's whole purpose in his school was to help build people's um, internal ethic to persevere to the extent of martyrdom. And I think also in this century of the schools of nonviolent resistance uh, under Martin Luther King Jr., that it takes that dedication and commitment to a different path before you even know what decisions you're going to have to make in the future. Absolutely. And that's what it seems like people are resisting and asking all the, the, the questions about the what ifs and the, you know, this and that scenario. Yeah, uh, Martin Luther King, I always think about John Lewis, you know. What a, a beautiful witness to Christ. But John Lewis, you know, and this was sort of Gandhi's point too, but, you know, the, their training is, oh, you're going to get beat up. <laughs> you know, step one, you're going to get beat up. 
And if you're not willing to do step one, you know, Gandhi says w w the, the one thing we don't need is cowards. In other words, if you're a coward, you better carry a gun or a knife because we don't, the, that in this movement, cowards, uh, people who don't, you know, who are afraid of the violence, uh, they're going to, they're going to ruin the movement. Yeah, Dr. King would say the same things before the peace marches. They would have meetings beforehand, and he would tell everyone in attendance, look, if you don't think that you can do this, if you don't, you know, they're going to stick the dogs on us. They're going to spray us with fire hoses. They're going to bait us. Uh, if you don't think that you can do it, there's no shame. It's okay, but you got to hang back. You got to hang back. You can't come with us because that's what's at stake, you know? But, you know, Christians who do the you know, the whataboutism or whatever you want to call it, you know, you, we have to reckon with what our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, you know, where he, he says, it's like, well, what do you do with that verse, Christian, whenever Jesus says, whereas I tell you not to oppose the wicked man by force. That's, it sounds like a very clear command. I tell you not to oppose a wicked man by force. So it's like, okay, Christian, what do you do that's your master. That's your Lord. That's your teacher. So that's the baseline. That's the starting point. So however you want to answer the question about what happens when the guy does this and that or whatever, right? It's like the commandment of our king, our general, like we were talking about earlier. It's like we have another, we have a general. That's why we have armor. You know, we have a commander We're we don't get entangled in civilian affairs. You know, St. Paul says elsewhere, it's like we do the work of our commanding officer who has commanded peace. And he said very clearly, don't resist the wicked man by force. If you're going to really, you know, try to follow Jesus, you would think that you got to take that to, into your heart and figure out, you know, what that's going to look like whenever the crap hits the fan, which it probably inevitably will. Yeah. And, and yeah, it does. I mean, it makes you think. And as you got to decide beforehand, you got to decide yeah. before. That's what Dr. King was saying. He was saying, before we leave to March, just make it decide in your heart. If you can do, you know, make the decision first. Don't wait until they're baiting you and, and you know, trying to get you to hit first or whatever. That's a, I mean, this is a this is a serious, you know, yeah. this is this is not easy stuff. You know, I, mean, I think we all turn immediately. We're questioning ourselves. Oh, I don't know. But that's the point. Is this? This is not an easy thing. This is a miraculous thing to be able to do this. To put on the armor of God. To to live the gospel. I think I can't do it, but maybe with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and maybe you know, uh, if I begin to practice these things of wearing this armor maybe i can do it you know i don't know i'm not it's not like i i you know i think we'll all be tested and maybe we'll fail but i think that it's a practice that we can put on if the soldiers of this world can train how to fight and to kill then why can't the soldiers of the kingdom train for peace and for creative solutions you know to very difficult problems it's like Hey man, the Navy SEALs and these guys or whatever, they the, the fighter jet pilot, these guys are trained killers. They're trained, you know, in in the art of war. And it sounds like what you're saying is, is that Christians have to train just as hard, if not harder, in the art of peace and of love and of you know creative 
resistance uh, to nonviolent resistance to evil. That's it. So are we hearing an echo or a parallel when we hear a sermon and the pastor saying that uh, God create God needed a perfect sacrifice, and so Jesus paid the penalty for the sins, and so are the fingerprints of the powers on those words, so to speak? Yes. That's the, that's the, I think that a violent gospel, a violent God, a violent theory of atonement is a mark of the powers. It comes across so smoothly. It is a gospel that I think makes it fairly easy. We don't really have to do this thing. Christ did it for us. And the alternative is, no, we have to take up our cross. We have to put on the armor of God. We have to imitate Christ. I mean, he tells you right there that, the, I mean, you know, you put armor on because you're about to get shot at, you know, and the flaming arrows are coming. They're going to come flying at you, you know? So it's like, you got to have, you got to be ready, you know? And the, the temptation, you know, we, we, you know, make it grandiose and say, oh, what happens when the guy, you know, breaks in to rape my wife or whatever, but the people who train in the military, you could train with easier stuff, right? In other words, like if you can master your anger in small situations, like around the house with your wife or your kids or whatever, right? Like you're right there, you're training right there, right? To be a peacemaker, to be, to walk in love, to, um, and then whenever some bigger, harder thing comes, you can rely on your training. You know what I mean? You've been training and now you're, you've reached like this harder test right but so in other uh, words I, I think that what you're saying is a very practical thing for me to live my life like with in mar in the context of marriage or friendship or whatever at work or whatever to say that uh, yeah it might not be me who has to decide like the nuclear bomb issue or whatever but i could be a peacemaker hopefully you know with my colleagues or at home and stuff like that and then whenever something you know, some big test comes and it's the big fight, you know, that you, it's like, maybe you've trained a little bit. You're a little bit better prepared. The problem that just gets too personal, man. <laughs> that's what, that's what you, that's, that's, that's your whole class. Your whole class has been about theosis. And so it's not that Jesus, you know, whenever Jesus, Jesus had been training for the moment of the cross and his encounter with the powers, his whole life, he had been, you know, growing in wisdom and in, and in, you know, in favor before God and men. So it's like Jesus had been tested over and over in the Gospels by the Pharisees and by his enemies and by the devil himself and his own disciples and everything. All these people were coming at him, trying to trick him, trap him, all this stuff. And so he was walking all this stuff out. And then whenever the most terrible moment of the cross came, whenever he said, hey, I could unleash, you know, legions, you know, he doesn't do it. And so it's like, I think even our Lord Jesus Christ, it's like, he's the, he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's like, he showed us how you got to work it. You got to follow me, you know, who, who can be trusted in little things can be trusted in great things, you know? So it's, for me, it's practical. And the reason why I'm passionate about it, because it's hard for me, I'm, I'm a, you know, I think that we're, we have that, it's like, we talk about peace so much because we're prone to anger and violence. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's why this class is like training in righteousness. If you can, if you can try to master it, because that passion is mastering us or we can master it. Violence can master us or we can master it. Yeah. I, and maybe I'm passionate about it because I was raised in a violent Christianity to embrace violence and, 
That's just, you know, I was raised on that stuff. And it was hard work. Jonathan, you you had the blessed gift to be raised in a nonviolent tradition. I didn't have Texas. Yeah, I was in Texas, man. You know, it's a manly gospel I was taught. Your muscular gospel in which uh, it took me years to get over that. And I I were talking about this earlier that, I mean, I'm from the streets, you know, so the one of the first things I noticed, I was like, oh, you know, it's only five chapters into the New Testament where Jesus starts talking about loving your enemies and peace and all this. And I was like, oh, of course, you know, this this Christianity thing is so different from everything else. Why wouldn't it be different with this issue, too? You know? Um, it's clear. I think whenever you, that's the other thing, people who have lived through violence and have seen the devastating, terrible effects of violence on families in the inner city or in war or veterans that I talked to as a hospice chaplain and stuff like that. Like, it's easy to sit there and talk tough and be like, oh yeah, you know, someone breaks into my house, this and that. And, and maybe you would handle your business or whatever. But if you see violence up close and personal or you experience it or you've participated in it i don't know it almost makes it like a little bit more understandable that jesus would say this is off limits for my people you know you know what this looks like you know what you know he was telling his disciples like run to the hills whenever they surround the city run to the you know run get out of the city the way i put it at least let's get the ideal before us I'm not saying, you know, whether whether we're up to this thing or not, at least let's get the ideal out there and say, this is what we're trying to achieve. And I think that the gospel then begins, that we've redescribed. You know, I think that we're really dealing with two counter, a, a kind of gospel and counter gospel. And the counter gospel is much easier to do. But I think once you get the full gospel, you also get the beauty and the power and the spirit. I think that there's a lot that comes with it that is makes this thing doable, but it also makes sense of Christianity, whereas I'm not sure that the other thing does anything other than support the principalities and powers as we have them. We also have to remember that when you choose the other thing, you're choosing an agonistic struggle. When you're choosing to follow Christ, you're choosing the lighter burden, the yoke that's shared and easier. So, you know, that can be said as well, not to negate what you're saying, Paul, but to say, you know, recognize the the truth that was spoken. Yeah, I mean, gun death is the highest violent death now, and, and most of those are suicides. And I would guess a good number of those are veterans. Uh, what is it? Eleven? I've lost the number, but like eleven veterans every day shoots them. So, yeah, we've it's, talked about. I mean, I've had veterans tell me as a as a chaplain that even in combat where they had to kill someone, you know, and they're usually doing it as we've talked about to defend their brother. That's how the platoon is. That's the you know sort of the strategy of the platoon. Like they've done studies that people are more likely to kill for their brother than for themselves, but that they it's, they have PTSD. They see the people that, that, you know, they didn't know him. They had to kill him. They were, you know, at war, they were just trying to do their duty, but they have to live with it for the rest of their life. It it, it causes real trauma, even though they were doing, you know, what they thought was, you know, they were laying down their life. They were protecting our freedom, whatever it is, you know, 
and, and a lot of times there's, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse. And it's, that's what I was talking about earlier about the trauma of violence. Like, I think that Jesus is always trying to give us good gifts and that with this, he's trying to give us a good gift here. Um, but that we hold on so tight, you know, our, our, our hands are closed, you know what I mean? And with our, uh, with our ideology and with our own way of thinking that we're not, we're not ready to receive the good gift that he's trying to give us. But people who have been a part of violence understand a little bit about the the trauma, that's um, that's you know, the death, the the hold that it takes on your life, you know. And I think that Jesus is trying to save us from that. Brian, your point is a key point. And that, that maybe that's the thing that I'm I have not said and needs to be said is that what's being described here is an individual putting on this armor that it's an individual psyche and understanding. I just, things that Matt is referencing here, I've done a blog on this uh, and a podcast or two. It's actually a United States colonel, and he did this study for the uh, military that they ran, you know, what is the cause of PTSD? Uh, can anybody guess what the major cause? It's not being, you know, they did studies on England when, you know, they were exposed to bombing and all kinds of, people dying it's not just the exposure to being attacked but the the particular thing that causes ptsd it's the killing and this is the united states he's a colonel in the u.s army who actually trains people i you know he may teach at a military college this is his point that it that ptsd is a direct result of participation in killing which is kind of a surprising result. You know, you would think, oh, that anybody exposed to violence, it's not just that. My point here with the armor is this is God's armor. The three pieces of the armor, truth, righteousness, the readiness to, to herald the gospel of peace. In Ephesians, David, we've said, and welcome, David, good to see you. The thing we've said about these is that Paul is summing up his gospel here. And so all of these terms are terms that he's already linked to Christ. Truth, he's talked about in 421, uh, truth and righteousness, 215, 424. Jesus is portrayed as the original preacher. He's the preacher of the gospel of peace, 217. He's described being united with Christ as the access to these characteristics, and so when we're talking about putting on the armor, I think we can just say this means putting on Christ. I mean, that's not a huge leap, right? That Christ is the one who gives us access to this armor. Uh, a similar verse is in Romans 13. Paul urges the Christians to put on the armor of light, 1312, and then he has a list of vices and virtues, but then in 1314, right after that, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, putting on the armor of light, putting on the armor is the same thing as putting on Christ. And there's a lot of parallels between Romans and Ephesians 6 on this. To put on the armor, it's synonymous with putting on Christ. As Douglas Boo puts it, that we are consciously to embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifested in all that we do and say. I think we could go through and fill out how you put on Christ. We have the faith of Christ. We imitate Christ. That all of these things are not, we often portray these 
you know, as a kind of sequential thing. But I think they're synonymous. And, and that's why I think we can talk about putting on the armor as, as synonymous with salvation. We can talk about imitation as synonymous with salvation. You know, Paul uses the term, put on Christ, uh, which is a word he uses a lot. It occur, occurs some 13 times uh, to put on, to wear the Christian clothing, putting on the clothing of Christ, being united with Christ. And then on the basis of this union, I think that's the what Paul, what is being described here are the details of that putting on, and then you have the new man. So being clothed in Christ, putting on Christ, having the mind of Christ is the, you know, in Ephesians 4.24, he says this is the new man. I think he's just saying the same thing in different terminology here. The, the whole point is you won't be able to stand it. You won't be able to stand firm. He says this five times. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. This is my problem with people like Hart. I'm sorry, Matt. Maybe it's your, because you're here tonight. <laughs> I think we have to redefine power. And I think that's part of the issue that we're, that we're dealing with here. Christian power is real power, but it is over and against this other kind of power. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Be able to withstand evil. This six twelve, six thirteen, six fourteen. Stand therefore. I guess you just can't stand it apart from the gospel, right? I mean, isn't that the implication? This thing is impossible apart from the gospel. What we're describing is a practical reality that undoes the necessity of the world, undoes the thought and logic of the world, and the only alternative we have, and that is putting on an armor that is given to us by God, and there is no other resource for this. Put on the full armor of God. I, I hate to say it this way, and it's not exactly right, but can you be saved apart from the armor of God? Can you be saved if you've not engaged the battle? Hmm. And if we, what we mean by save, David, is a practical salvation, right? Once we get rid of the going to heaven and missing hell, well, no, it, it, it is what Brian is describing. It's having, putting on the peace of Christ. I think Brian said something earlier that's, that's pretty profound. That is, is that origin of Alexandria was training his catechumens to be martyrs. And he was accompanying them, you know, oftentimes to their martyrdom and encouraging them and saying, don't, don't give up the gospel. Don't, you know, and there's a long tradition that comes after that of people accompanying the martyrs. But in other words, like, it sounds like what you're saying is, is that the, the whole thing that comes down to like, well, what happens if someone breaks in and does this or whatever? It's like, this is a terrible thing. And I, I don't even know if I could do it. You, you know, if someone broke into my house and was going to hurt me and my wife. It's like, is that Christ calling me to martyrdom? Maybe, I don't know. You know, when else, when else is your martyrdom going to come? But for origin in the early church, the greatest thing that you could ever do is to be a martyr for Christ. That is to die for the gospel of peace, to, you know, let, let evil do to you what it did to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is kill you if necessary, but you don't, you don't give yourself over to evil. You don't, you don't make a deal with the devil or whatever, you know, at the, at the end of the, when the test is the, the fire is the hottest or whatever, you know? So it's a profound thing, what Brian said, because 
I don't know if, you know, sort of the mainstream Christianity is like training people to be martyrs. It's almost like this accommodationalism to, uh, you know, all this other stuff, right? Uh, whether it's like sexual stuff or violence or whatever else, it's like we're kind of trying to accommodate all of it. Whereas I think what Brian was saying with the origin is like, no, like we're training to be soldiers that die. It's not even that we're being trained to be soldiers who don't die. It's like we're being, we're, Paul says in the middle of his beautiful Romans 8, you know, that we're like sheep, you know, sent to the slaughter. We, we, we're dying all day long for you. It's kind of weird right there in that section because he's talking about all this beautiful stuff. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, you know, and but then he says, but we're like the sheep, you know, being slaughtered all day long. You know, it's it's kind of a, a kind of like a bummer or something like right in the middle of like this beautiful passage. But I think it's because of what Brian's talking about, that that's how you actually participate in the love of God is to be like the sheep, like Christ being led to the slaughter, that that's how that pattern, what he's saying there is like proven to you that nothing will separate you from God's love. Actually, in that moment, you might find strength that you you didn't even think was possible. Like there's stories of martyrs who who said that they didn't even feel pain from the from the flames. And I mean, there's all kind of, read the prologue of Orid, where they talk about all the different accounts of martyrs who go to these terrible deaths and um, sometimes their wounds are healed. Sometimes they don't feel the freezing cold water or the boiling, you know, heat and stuff like that. In other words, like we believe in the miraculous. David's you know? going to comment and and refute everything you've said. Oh no, oh no. I, I always have fun refuting Matt. So uh, <laughs> no, uh, I remember there was a group of us that went through Kreider's book. The their patient was it early patient ferment of the patient. The, Patient ferment of the early the early church. church yeah. yeah, and one of the things that Kreider said was that they developed a habitus, right? And so, you know, so like the the question, which by the way, I've gotten it from. I, I was in a group setting one time where they're like, after a sermon that morning that night, we're hanging out, and somebody says, "All right, we know Dave won't protect his wife if somebody comes into the house, but who else will shoot and kill?" You know, and, and so. Um, you know, That's and so terrible. they're always they're always set up in those type of you know the what ifs, right? How about the what if is we I, like what would I do? I don't know, but what if I develop habits of of peace so that when that moment comes, I'll be that martyr. I'll I'll be I'll I'll have this the spirit uh, leading me to know how to deal with that that situation. That's the one thing that really Kreider stuck out to me. And I know, um, what is it, J.K. Smith or whatever over there, and I think he's in Grand Rapids. He talks a lot about developing. We have to develop these habits and just continue to develop them and, and, you know, so that when the time comes, we'll be ready to go to the cross. So that's all I got to say. No refute of Matt. I think, you know, you think about the early Christian parents, they understood that part of the, the, the price of their children becoming Christians is there, there's the real possibility of martyrdom. That is part of the, yeah, that's part of the decision that was early, that was made early on. Brian, I'm still thinking about your thought here. And actually, Wink talks about this also. That, you know, Wink was very much involved in social action. And he realized, this actually speaks to what you said too, David, that he hadn't prepared himself for what he was up against. This is Wink. 
Those of us engaged in struggles for social justice have been incredibly naive about what has been happening in our own psyches. The impatience of some activists with prayer, meditation, and inner healing may itself represent an inchoate knowledge of what they might find if they looked within. For the struggle against evil makes us evil, and no amount of good intentions can prevent its happening. The whole armor of God that Paul counsels us to put on in Ephesians 6 is crafted specifically to protect us against that contagion of evil within our own souls, and its metals are all annealed in prayer. And so if Wink is right, and I suspect it, it, it is, I think what is being described, it is this, we're, we're putting on an inner peace. Uh, it's not just an evil out there, but it's the capacity that, you know, this penetrates our own souls, our own psyches. Uh, we're doing the battle first within ourselves, you know. So I think it is this inner preparation. You know, Wink had a mental breakdown at some point, in the midst of, where was he? He was in, he had gone to study this issue, and he couldn't take it. And I think that's part of the uh, conclusion that, you know, it brings him to. That what we're describing is ultimately a deep inner peace that enables us to sustain, in a sense, to, 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 to stand. <laughs> St. Seraphim Saraf says, he has a famous quote where he says, Acquire a spirit of peace, and thousands around you will be saved. Say it again, man. He said, acquire a spirit of peace, and thousands around you will be saved. Yeah. yeah. Because he's saying that that's what Christ, you know, that Christ had the spirit of peace, you know, and that the people, I've, you know, the people, anyone who associated themselves with him were saved, and that we can participate in that, that if we can acquire that spirit of peace, that the thousands around us will be saved. It's profound. It's what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it is just an attractive thing. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.